This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 75. But it's an underserved topic. We rush into the lesson, we rush into development without thinking about how do we help leaders own their coachability? And it starts with what I call the learning zone. That's a study we did. We looked at 200 leaders where we had their judgment of how coachable they were seen by others. And then we had a personality assessment of their confidence. And it wasn't linear. It was fascinating. It was actually what's called curvilinear, low confidence, low coachability, high, high confidence, low coachability. And the sweet spot was the middle. And that's what I call a learning zone. And back to these practices of seek, respond, reflect, and act, that help leaders get into their learning zone and not drift into what I call the I can't or the I don't care zone. What does it mean to be a coachable leader? How can being a coachable leader future-proof your career? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the importance of being coachable and being open to feedback. In fact, research by I4CP on creating a performance feedback culture found that an increased focus on developmental feedback was only one of eight performance management techniques to show a direct positive effect on organizational outcomes and employee outcomes like engagement and retention. So what's the takeaway here? If you want to improve employee engagement, retention, and other employee outcomes, you're going to want to listen closely to today's guest, Kevin Wildey. Currently, Kevin serves as the Executive Leadership Fellow at the Carlson School of Management, University of Minnesota, where he teaches applied leadership in several graduate school courses. Prior to joining the Carlson School of Management, Kevin had an incredible corporate career in leadership and talent development at General Electric and then General Mills. And during his time at General Mills, the organization was consistently recognized by Fortune and many other organizations as one of the best companies in the world at leadership development. Kevin was also recognized by Chief Learning Officer Magazine in 2007 as the Chief Learning Officer of the Year. Kevin is also a Senior Strategic Business Advisor for the Institute for Corporate Productivity, also known as I4CP, where he provides thought leadership on business and human capital research and next practice frameworks. And if you're not impressed yet, Kevin's also the author of two books, and today we're going to go deep on his latest book, Coachability, The Leadership Superpower. And what I love about Coachability is that it's not only a book based on sound research, but it tackles a topic that so far has been ignored. Everyone wants to get better at giving feedback, but the real superpower is being able to receive feedback. Kevin is someone I've admired in our field for some time now, so it was a real pleasure to sit down with him and discuss his new book. And in my conversation with Kevin today, we're going to discuss why he believes that leaders teaching leaders is critical to successful leadership development programs, why coachable leaders have a different mindset than less coachable leaders, why being coachable decreases as we age and advance in our careers, how to overcome the seven faulty assumptions that low coachable leaders make, how Kevin's two-question technique helps leaders seek out feedback, 
how to seek out and find a truth teller who will give you candid feedback, and what most people are doing wrong when receiving feedback, and what you should do instead, and much more. Kevin, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Looking forward to a great conversation. I'm excited not only to talk to you because you have been somewhat of a legend in the field of learning and talent for a long time. You've written a couple of books, but you've got a new book out called Coachability. And I think that is a credible topic. Being coachable is something we'll talk enough about. So I'm excited to have you on today to talk more about the book and your great career. But let's start with your career. You had an impressive career. You were a GE and then the VP of Org Effectiveness and Chief Learning Officer for General Mills for 17 years. A nice run there. Nice run. But during that time, General Mills was consistently recognized as one of the best companies for leadership development, like year in, year out. Tell us more about how you approach leadership development there and what made General Mills special. Thank you for your kind comments. I still feel I'm on the career journey, so I'm not done. I'm not done. But on to the next stage. And, and the book's been part of that contribution. It, part of the General Mills day was the magic of one, having a great senior leadership team that believed in the importance of culture and talent and investing in people and that made it work. But they demanded that they were looking for practicality. We had just a great HR department, which is probably the ingredient number two. A lot of talented people. And notable, if you go back to the years I was there, many of my colleagues have gone on to be chief learning officers or other significant roles in the company. So great HR talent. And again, great mission of the company. And I think that all aligned with, hey, let's invest in the future of leadership. And I think on my end, what really made it work was I not only had learning and development in my portfolio, but I had talent development, I had succession, a number of other things that then I could integrate what we were doing in learning and leadership to other parts so we were sustaining. It's interesting that you had an integrated approach because I think so when the Wayback Machine, there was a time when it was really inter not integrated at all, but it was like there's learning. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you had talent, sometimes you didn't, but talent didn't really come around into a, a discipline maybe for the last, like, say, 10 to 15 years. So that was a different approach you took with General Mills there. It was ideal. And then also I had a great team, a lot of talented people that really, in fact, I remember I had one person come in from the marketing department. And just taught us a lot about what we would now call employee engagement and sensing and understanding the employee experience. And early on, it just opened my eyes. So having the fusion of talent made a difference as well. If you could tell us a little bit about maybe one of the programs or some of the things you did at General Mills that you were most proud of during that time period. It sounds like oh, you yeah. actually ripe, right foundation for that. Yeah, I'll tell you one fun one I was thinking about with a friend the other day. We were the marketing person that joined my department was in charge of employee engagement, sensing and surveys, engagement, all that. We would do some deep analytics way back in the day. And one thing we found is there was a difference between employees working for a good boss and a great boss. And it covered so much about innovation and going the extra mile, et cetera, that we launched an initiative called Great Manager. It really was based on what we saw as the difference and the upside but we rolled it out from the top down. So we had the senior leaders, the CEO, the senior teams go through it. There was leaders teaching leaders, some real insights that what's the difference between good and great. If I recall, there were three insights. One was, if you're working for a great boss, number one, he or she believes in you. Number two, they support you in a number of ways. And then number three, they stretch you and they would challenge you. And I remember back who are my great managers that they saw things in me I never saw and then would put me in jobs and roles of like, I don't know if I can do this. But that accountability, that stretching was part of it. So we rolled it out in the company. The other thing we did was so fun was we brought in, in addition to the classroom, the 360s and all that, 
we brought in theater. So we brought in uh, a guy out of New York, Scott Act. He's got a company called Leadership Masters. I can highly recommend it. He essentially brings leadership to life through theater. In the case of our program, we brought his company in to do theater based on the amazing story of Sir Ernest Shackleton and the endurance and all of that and brought it to life. Literally, we would go from being in the classroom to say, okay, we're done with that. Let's go next door to the auditorium. And then it was a great performance. So there's a lot of great creativity as part of it. And the punchline there is once we got the program rolled out worldwide, we saw increases in the scores of management effectiveness. It was very encouraging. So great, great effort. And again, great team that pulled it off. That's a great story. And I love that idea of the great manager. It's so important to do that. And one thing you touched on is you talked about leaders leading leaders. In some ways, I feel like it's less of that today than there used to be. Phil Tichy came up with that idea, or is at least given credit for that, coined the term. But I don't think it's happening as much as it needs to be in corporate America and kind of thinking about L&D. What do you think? Is that true or am I wrong? I would say it's not as frequent as it should be. I teach executive MBAs and some other courses at the University of Minnesota, and, and it just happened Saturday. I was talking about a meeting that I thought was the end of my career. I was running some of the executive development programs at General Electric back in the day, Crotonville and all the good stuff going on. I had a dozen senior executives come in and do Q&A in my class. And at the time, the then CEO, Jack Welch, had dinner with the then CEO of Pepsi that started doing Leaders Teaching Leaders. He was so inspired, he said, Kevin's course is going to start doing that. And I was hauled into corporate to go to a staff meeting with Jack and the senior team to tell them they're going to start teaching in my class. I was so nervous, JP. It was unbelievable. We all had those moments like, whoa, this is... And I remember being next door in the break room, and some of the staff members would run in and out and say, oh, hi, Kevin, because they knew me from the Q&A stuff. And it was my time to go in there. I was very nervous, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Literally, think about a long mahogany table. I'm sitting at the end of it. There's Jack to my left. There's my boss's boss, Dr. Steve Kerr to my right, all the other senior executives of the company. And this is no exaggeration. I looked down at the mahogany table, the spot I was going to sit in, and there were like fingernail scratch marks. People had dug in there to like, okay, Kevin, just breathe, take it easy. The meeting went well. We brought in the people to start teaching. In fact, I remember Jack at the time started articulating what turned out to be his four E's of leadership at the time. But it was just so powerful that in addition to bringing in a professor on leadership or a consultant or reading a book, that your own leaders were telling their stories about successes and failures and what they expected. I would say that if you were to put me into any leadership development role, a couple of things I would do. First, I'd tell the senior people, you go first and then you teach. And teach not just your successes and your expectations, talk about your failures. And I think that's the appetite and what people want. And again, that was part of my experience. But I don't think I contributed much to the scratch marks on the table, but I can see it to this day like, oh, I'm in trouble. That's an incredible story. And probably was a pretty high anxiety situation, right? Because you're like, what are they going to say here? Yeah. Jack Welsh is a legend. But thank you for getting the punchline because the question I really should ask you about leaders teaching leaders, right? is why does it matter and why is it so important? So I think you really hit the nail on the head on that one. And it just drives a lot home when people hear their leaders telling those stories and talking about the culture. It just takes it from academic to real life. And people are so much more engaged by that. And you also have the cognitive dissonance that the leaders now have to sort of live up to those behaviors. Mm -hmm. They went in that room and they taught the behavior. They can't go back, right? So that also helps in terms of getting that commitment and and getting people to to move the needle on uh, culture. I would add to that, and back to when I was teaching Saturday where I ended the class was, what would you teach? 
What do you care enough about the values and the culture and the raising their generation that you're willing to take the time that you then would go in front of a group, be part of a class, but take the time to mentor and teach on something you deeply care about? And I think that's the other part of leadership development is helping people step back from the fray and remind themselves what's most important. What do you want your great manager legacy to be? What do you want the culture to be different than it is today? What do you want the customer satisfaction to be different? And then go make it happen. I love that. Kevin, let's talk a little more about your book. You originally were going to write a book about career derailment, but you shifted to coachability. What made you change direction? It started when I was doing a succession review with the CEO of General Mills at the time, and I got myself into trouble. So this, I don't know if you've ever had your curiosity go a little too far. I'm in this meeting. We're talking about the top 500, and like, it's all good. And literally, I started by looking at the list of high potentials that we had. We we're going to discuss that day. And as with a lot of companies, we had great talent and wanted to move them ahead. But I noticed there was a name missing. And I said, excuse me, there's a name missing. What happened to so-and-so? And I remember the CEO saying, Kevin, that person has left the company. Oh, I couldn't let it go. Like, there was another name missing. I said, what about this name? Kevin, what's your point? <laughs> Oh, nothing. Sorry. And we moved on. We had a great meeting on the successful leaders and, and promotions and all that. But I had to investigate. So essentially, I started studying derailment of the company and looking at the successful, hardworking leaders that got over their heads and something bad happened and started getting a collection of patterns on what is derailment? How do we signal, hey, you're in trouble. You need to start doing something, giving them the tools and resources so it didn't happen as much. One thing stunning was in addition to doing a postmortem, interviewing their manager and maybe teammates, is I'd look at their personnel file. And their last leadership survey, their last 360 of record, typically had one question significantly different than everybody else. And the question was, does this leader seek and respond to feedback? In other words, were they coachable? The drill leaders were 30% lower on that one question. It almost predicted something bad's going to happen. So I started digging into what's going on here. And academically, now that I'm a part-time professor at the University of Minnesota in the business school, I could do the academic research. And there's a lot written on derailment. And I thought, well, that's just reporting on the accident. Why don't I talk about what do you do? And that's how do you avoid that not seeking feedback anymore? And that's what I call coachability. And that's what five years of research turned into the book on here's what we found, why it's important, and why it helps you not just avoid derailment, but there's an upside. And what do you do? Well, and I think people should definitely pick up your book, Coachability, because it's, it's very easy to read. You're not trying to build an academic research book. This book is pragmatic, actionable, and built to help not only HR or talent leaders or managers and business leaders to get better at being coachable. So I think that's true and tremendous. And you've talked about this idea of seeking feedback. So does that make you a coachable leader? Or what does that mean to be a coachable leader? Let me start with the definition that I came up with. And essentially, I started by interviewing 50 executive coaches. When you see highly coachable clients, what do you see? What do you see when it's missing? Then did the academic literature on everything from emotional intelligence to seek feedback orientation. Essentially, what I came up with was three things. Number one, the highly coachable leaders had a mindset. And the mindset was, I'm not done. I want to keep learning. I'm a unfinished product and I'm curious. So that was kind of the mindset that, if you will, that growth mindset that drove coachability. And then there were four practices. And as I started studying highly coachable leaders, their differences, they had habits that worked for them in four areas. And one was they, they found a way to seek. They found a way to investigate, hey, how am I doing? How am I coming across? What should I be paying attention to that I'm not? There was a variety of techniques that are in the book that they started using. 
So there was seek, and then it was, well, when feedback shows up, how do you act? Let's face it, feedback is not a gift. It is hard. It is emotional. And these highly coachable leaders learned how to take it and learned how to turn it into a positive experience. The third thing is they would then reflect. They took the time to think about it more than we usually do. And if it was important, they then acted. So that was kind of the five-part model that you had a mindset. I want to get better. I should be open. And then four specific practices of seeking, responding well, reflecting, and acting. And happy to talk about any of those. The one thing, JP, I want to get into is, before we get into the techniques, this notion about what's the value? You know, why, why would you value being highly coachable? Again, there's a big upside on what I found is highly coachable leaders, the academic literature would show higher levels of performance, higher levels of employee engagement, higher promotability scores. I saw one study that angel investors are more than willing to invest in highly coachable entrepreneur startups. Statistically, there are stats that show that if you are seen as a highly coachable salesperson, you're more than your peers to achieve your sales goal, and on and on and on. But it's an underserved topic. We rush into the lesson. We rush into development without thinking about how do we help leaders own their coachability? And it starts with what I call the learning zone. That's a study we did. We looked at 200 leaders where we had their judgment of how coachable they were seen by others. And then we had a personality assessment of their confidence. And it wasn't linear. It was fascinating. It was actually what's called curvilinear, low confidence, low coachability, high, high confidence, low coachability. And the sweet spot was the middle. And that's what I call a learning zone. And back to these practices of seek, respond, reflect, and act, that helped leaders get into their learning zone and not drift into what I call the I can't or the I don't care zone. I love that learning zone. We all should be in the learning zone for our entire careers. Like we're always so much to learn and it doesn't matter where you're at in your career. Like you can always get better. You have to seek that feedback out. I am curious though, Kevin, as you talked about kind of those high confidence folks that maybe aren't coachable. What does the research say? I mean, is coachability just a trait? Are some people coachable and some people just not coachable? Yeah, I did dive into that. And I did talk to some experts in the field, particularly in the field of coaching, say, do you ever have clients? It's like, no, not coachable. I come down on the side of there are times when all of us are not coachable. And then there are times we are. And back to the how do you operate more and help people get more in their learning zone is helpful, but it's tough. One of the studies we looked at, we had a database of 100,000 leaders. We're judging their 360 feedback from others on are they coachable or not. And it declined. It declined as you advance in level and it declined by age. So over a certain age, like it just gets harder. So I'd say one of the dynamics is early in our career, yeah, we're sponges, we're open, people know it, they want to help us out. And to some degree, we earn our success and then we become victims of our success and we get really, really busy. And sometimes the world treats us in a different way. So sometimes it's not just our traits. And, And I found that there's some traits that are helpful, correlate openness to experience is a positive trait. Being overly structured is, is a negative trait. And you just got to work a little harder. And then the environment, sometimes if it's highly competitive, it's toxic, it's hard to seek feedback. But again, you got to find ways to figure out what am I doing and how could I do it better? But in many cases, that's self-imposed, that we define the environment to be not feedback rich when it, it really could be. Interesting. Well, you have probably have a psychologically safe environment as well sometimes to ask for that feedback or feel safe enough to get that feedback. But to your point, there's signals all around us all the time that we be paying more attention to, right? That we're getting from our boss, from our peers, from our team. We just have to be more aware of it. You did talk a little bit about the decline and kind of the assumption 
that low coachable leaders as they maybe progress in age or further in their career are less coachable. And in the book, he talked about the five faulty assumptions of low coachable leaders. And I thought it was just very clever. And I wanted to see if you can talk a little more about a few of those faulty assumptions that people make yeah. uh, that keep us from being coachable. And back to the, if we had to start helping leaders get more coachable because again, they're overconfidence or they need that confidence, you might want to look at any of the five. I'm up to seven now. <laughs> There's probably more, but one of the common ones is what I call the false finish line. And the notion, I've been promoted, I'm successful. Why would I want to ask people for feedback anymore? Follow me. As opposed to, no, you're never really finished. You should always be learning and finding different ways of getting feedback, but there's no finish line. The reverse of that I found as well, and I call that the superhuman stance. And I remember coaching a director once, newly promoted, wanted feedback, but she was very concerned by asking people would misinterpret it as weakness or reaffirming a gap she might have. That was a self-imposed imposter syndrome that kept her from getting the coaching that would have been helpful. Another one is I call the boss booster bubble. And it's a notion about, well, as you get power, people start treating you differently and they filter what they tell you. Yeah, good news, I'll tell you, boss. Bad news, I'll let someone else tell you that. And again, for most of us, we know there's two sides to the story. But over time, we can be seduced and, hey, I haven't heard anything bad about me lately or it's all good, so I'm going to charge ahead. As opposed to saying, no, I better reach out and uh, learn more. The other one, just for an HR audience that I've, I've added recently, is I call it backseating. And backseating is the notion about, think about an Uber ride or a taxi ride. We get in the backseat and we tell a driver, here's the destination, get me there. Sometimes when we're helping our leaders through coaching or through training, we take full responsibility of driving. As opposed to saying, no, no, you need to bring part of this. You're the co-pilot here. Let's bring your coachability as part of this game. And getting people to own their coachability, to learn the lessons, to keep seeking feedback and doing those things, that we shouldn't take the full responsibility. We should make awareness. We should build a partnership, give them the tools, but help them own their own learning zone. I love that one, last one, Kevin, because I think sometimes even business leaders will say to the HR team, why isn't this person improving? You've got to help them improve. You've got to help coach them. But if they don't want to take accountability for it, if they don't want to improve, we're going to be sort of stuck, right? So it's a good one to remind ourselves to not get too involved and try to take the wheel a little bit on that coaching piece. Mm -hmm. Going through the four phases of model, let's talk a little bit deeper about seek, right? So I think it's the first step in the model. To, to get better and be coachable, you have to seek out feedback. Right. Why are leaders just they're not, very good, they're not very skilled at doing this? Why is that? It's hard. We're not in practice, nor do we have a lot of good role models for it. But of the leaders I found are highly coachable is they found a way to get the input they needed on how am I doing, how am I coming across. There's a couple direct ways I've seen. I get a lot of them in the book, but I'll, I'll mention a few that I learned. One is a very simple one I call two questions. And it's a notion about, it's a little after action review at the end of a project or at the end of an event to say, hey, before we run off, I got a couple questions. Number one, what did I do well I should do again? And what's one thing I could do differently that would be even better? Case in point, this year promoting the book, I've had the honor of being on a lot of podcasts. And one thing that's going to happen, JP, when we're done with this is, okay, once you hit the off button, I want to ask you two questions. I'm going to do more podcasts. Give me some coaching. What's one thing I did well in this podcast I should do again? And what's one thing that'd be even better that maybe your other guests did? And just that openness and curiosity. And I've learned, and I'm still learning to be a, a good host or a good guest on a podcast, but I've learned a few things. that Oh, I didn't know that. So two questions is a good one. I think having a truth teller. My favorite story in the book is a time I really screwed up big time. A frontline supervisor, I was in manufacturing way back in the day when 
you had to pass out physical paychecks. We didn't have direct deposit. I thought this is the most boring thing in the world. And then I was going from station to station, giving my employees their paycheck. I would make a little joke, you know, hey, JP, big money, here you go. Or hey, don't spend it all at once. Or did you earn it? And I thought I was the funniest supervisor in the plant. I get the job done. I go back to my little supervisor cubicle. And there, sitting in my chair is my lead supervisor, my lead uh, technician, Jim. And Jim said, sit down. Okay. Sat down. And he just had a smile on his face. He says, we've been talking. We think you're going to work out as our new boss. But I've got to tell you, when it comes to passing out paychecks, shut up. And JP, I was blindsided. I was horrified. I apologized. I went back out to the floor and said, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I won't do this again. I didn't know it. I thought later, if Jim wouldn't have told me that, I would have been doing that stupid act every two weeks and my employees would be grumbling behind my back. And that's the kind of blind spots we all have as leaders. So back to the, do you have a Jim in your life? Do you have a truth teller? One of the ways of seeking is seeking out those truth tellers. I'll give you another story. It's going to be my log for next month. The month after Winston Churchill was elevated to uh, prime minister in 1940, his wife wrote him a letter that said, you're not starting well. You're a bully. People don't like you. This is going to go poorly for you. She tore up the letter, and the very next day, she rewrote it and gave it to him. And according to historians, he took it to heart and changed his leadership style during a very stressful time. I just love that story about truth tellers or what I call signal catchers and being open for that. But in my class, I'll say, who's your truth teller? Who's your trusted advisor? And when was the last time you had a conversation? So those are a couple ideas on Seek. There's more in the book, but that notion about ask for a little bit of feedback, be specific, be curious, and have a truth teller coaching session regularly. Well, I love those two questions and the importance of a truth teller. What do you think, Kevin? Do you have any recommendations? How do you find a great truth teller? Because it can be challenging. It is a little bit of an art of just getting out there and building relationships and see where it goes. I always encourage people to do what I call a Seek map. Like every six months, piece of paper, three columns, one column. What do you want to learn? What are you curious about? Middle column, where would you get the information from? And then the final column, how would you start the conversation? And then just pick one to do. And I think both of the, I'm interested in this. Here's a person I can talk to on it, see how it goes. And then over time, it could blossom into a truth teller. Uh, the other one that a favorite of mine, I remember going from the hard driving General Electric to the very kind Midwest General Mills, where everyone has to save face. Now, I think they've been a little more agile at the time, but at the time it was a little old corporate. And I remember I had the head of compensation became my truth teller. And I consciously said, hey, could you give me some tips from time to time? How am I doing? He was a bit of a runner at the time. So every other Friday we'd go out for a run. And about halfway through the run, I'd start hearing the truth of what Kevin's all about. And it, it blossomed over time. But I think it's so important to engender having those kinds of people in your life. We're going to get to the, I've got a blog. I put things out there. I did a blog on the six ways uh, to find a truth teller. One of the ones that impresses me is when you do have truth tellers, make sure they're different than you are. Oftentimes we are comfortable with people like us in so many ways. And I think the power of diversity comes through in having that with our advisors and our truth tellers, people that are very different than us. And again, to build those relationships is so important. That's a really important point because they bring a different perspective that we just aren't going to have, right? And that's when you really can have some big insights because you're like, I just didn't see the world the way they're seeing in that world. And that could be diversity of thought, background, et cetera, like you said. And I will give a shout out to VPs of Total Rewards in the world. I've always had a great relationship with VPs of Total Rewards and found that they're pragmatic, 
truthful, obviously fact-based, and just have almost had some of the best relationships I've ever had in HR with those folks who, I think to your point, are very willing to tell you the truth and how they see it. So maybe it goes with the job and making some tough calls on numbers. But once you've got the feedback, how do you respond? What should leaders be doing here? And what are we most likely getting wrong when we respond to feedback? Back to the, my take on it. Feedback's a gift, but it's really ugly. You've got to train like an athlete. You've got to learn how to have that muscle memory to respond when it shows up because either you've asked for it or Jim's sitting in your office. If you do it poorly, if you're too defensive or if you argue or you dismiss it, you'll never get feedback again. What I learned, my friend, this is Scott Eck from Leadership Masters, that he was a professional actor for many years in New York and on television. And he taught me about when you get into the acting profession, at the end of a rehearsal, the director will give everyone a note or feedback. Here's your body language. Here's how your lines came across. He said, the first thing you learn as a professional actor is how to take a note. And I think about an ego-driven profession, like, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So I always see it as if feedback's coming your way to get into a mindset of openness, like, I'm just taking a note. I need to listen well. I need to understand it. I need to affirm the relationship because it's really risky for the other side to give me feedback. And then I can judge it later. I can think about it. I can ask for examples. I can follow up. But at the moment, it's like, I've got to get myself into a listening mode. And around the house, what I use for a mindset is when all of a sudden I'm getting feedback at home, I think, oh, here comes my tip of the day. (laughs) And I use that to just listen, just listen. Don't argue. Don't like, well, you did it wrong before, or who are you to tell me? No, here comes a tip. And I can deal with it once I hear it, but I need to get the message. And that's the magic of learning how to respond. Take a note. Take a note. That is a great tip. And then once you've taken a note, we have to act. How should we act? And what are things that get in the way of maybe acting on that feedback? Yeah. JP, if I may, we missed a step. We we missed, we We we, we didn't reflect. You got to think about it. It's funny because when I teach this in one of my exec MBA courses, that is the one, I've got a self-assessment tool they use. That's their weak spot. They're open, they want to grow, they'll go out, they'll ask, they'll respond well, and then they want to act. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to step back a little more than you think. You need to get up to the balcony. You've got to make connections and decide, is this something important for me to act on? Not all the time. Not every bit of feedback is worth acting on. I think every bit of feedback is a chance to say, thank you. I'll think about it, or I'm not going to act at this time. Or like, that's important. I want to work it. And once you reflect enough, and again, having a truth teller you can talk to, doing some journaling, going out for a walk or a run to uh, disengage and think about these things, I think is so important. Back to the blind spots. Unless you sit back, you're going to be missing things. So seek, respond, take enough time to reflect, and if it's important, get into the act. To answer your question on acting, there's a body of literature on self-improvement. Not going to cover that. I covered my tips in in the book, but a couple of my favorite, one of the pieces of research I did in my classes, everyone ends my class and they don't get a grade. And I said, all right, you're not going to get a grade yet. You got one more semester in the program. Go work on something, get better. And then we're going to do a little follow-up survey. And so when we do the wrap-up on, did you get better at listening or influencing or strategy? I asked them to what degree you completed your action plan. Did you take action? And I found some fascinating things of the leaders and my students that did better at following through and taking action, as seen by others as well as their own self-report on, did I do this or not? They did more to what I call activate the plan. They picked something important. They told someone, reminded themselves about it, but they did a number of things to do reminders to do regular reflections on it, to get the support they needed, to get the training they needed, 
they made it more of a continuous effort as opposed to one time, hey, I'm going to work on something and then next week we're busy and we're done. So they surrounded themselves with a kind of campaign, if you will. Here's how I get better. Here are my patterns. How do I bring all those resources to bear? One of the professors, Dr. Teresa Glom at the university talks about parking downhill. And I love that too as an action tip. And the notion is if you've got a car on a hill and if you park it downhill, gravity will help you get started. And she said, if you're trying to build a new habit, for case in point, starting productively at the beginning of the day, the day before, park downhill. Take everything off your desk or your work area and only put on it what you need to start your day. What's that one important project? And how do you make it easier for you to do the thing you want to do? And she called that parking downhill. And I love that. And I use it myself. That's another great tip. Such a reason why a lot of people need to read the book, Kevin. I think there's a lot to unpack, but we're getting a lot of value today. So I've got good feedback for you coming up here at the end of the podcast and feedback from myself to not forget <laughs> reflecting. I know that sometimes it's easy to do that. So I'll uh, take that feedback as well. But let's talk a little bit about for HR because HR and talent professionals, a lot of times we're on the front lines, we're working with leaders. And what about when you're working with a low coachability leader and how do we influence that leader to be more coachable? What are your suggestions there? Helping a a leader that's a little more resistant to being coachable or feedback. I was asked at a conference I was presenting at recently, and I said, well, okay, a couple things. Number one, candidly, it's going to be hard. You should have started earlier. So the first thing I'll say is take those entry-level new managers, mid-managers, and invest in their coachability. Get that muscle back, getting feedback started, get them back in the learning zone, and put that into your training, your programs, I'd say even your promotion and hiring. Make a competency. Is this person coachable? And start early. So they've got the habit because later on, it just gets hard. And my stats would show once you're over the age of 35, it's really hard to build something new in general. I found exceptions. They did some of the action things we talked about. Back to, and I've had tough clients as, as an HR generalist in my career. And to some degree, you have to be reflective on what helps them get in their own learning zone. And it may not be because you told them, or here's your 360. But some way to get them to think about why is this important for them? What would help them, again, get in that learning zone to take the feedback or on something, be more coachable? It reminds me of some recent research, revalidated my self-assessment on coachability. 332 leaders, we had their 360 as judged by others, but we had the 30 items I've got in my self-assessment of coachability. And the uh, IO psychologist that helped me with it came back, you know, Kevin, five questions. There are five questions that predicted someone's coachability. And they broke into two themes, which I think would help in terms of getting a senior or a more resistant person into learning zone. Highly coachable leaders, number one, see feedback as mission critical. Two questions is, I see feedback is critical to achieve my goals or critical to develop. So the question is not because you in HR think it's critical, it's do they think it's critical? Not nice to do, not get everyone to calm down, let's move on, but no, I need this. And if you can get them thinking that way, that helps them be more coachable. The other one was surprise. So the first one was the why questions. Why do this? Why get the feedback? Why be coachable? The other three were very surprising. They were who questions, W-H-O. They were questions on empathy, questions on respect for others, and questions on respect for differences. In other words, they were relationship and diversity questions. So I think if you can help a senior leader or more resistant leader be more coachable, get in touch with the why questions from their standpoint. Why is this important for me? But then also the who. If you're getting this feedback from others, to what degree do you value those relationships? To what degree do you value the differences and the differences of opinion? And how is that helpful? Those would be some clues. 
But again, Kevin's advice, should have started earlier, started earlier, invest this early in a career. Well, I love that building a kind of coachability as a competency for an organization. Because a lot of times we talk about, we need a feedback culture, right? A high performance culture as a culture of feedback and feedback's a gift. But to your point, you can't have a feedback culture if you're not coachable and open to the feedback and responding. So I love that you're going not to the scene of the crime, as you talk about the scene of the accident, but preventing the accidents and putting the seatbelts on, if yeah. you will. If I may, sort of the, reminding me, I did a little research in the book on there. There's this really fun little tool in Google Trends where you can put in two search terms. So I put in the search term, how do I give feedback versus how do I receive feedback? There's no contest. The ratio was 10 to 1. Everyone's trying to learn how to get better at giving it. I call it the supply of feedback versus the demand. Do I want it and how do I use it? And I think back to you want a feedback rich culture? Yeah, certainly work on what are the techniques and how to do it well. And that's important. But I'd be building the demand. Back to my little seek map, you know, helping people say, well, what would you want to learn? Why would that be important? What relationships are critical to you that you want to make sure that you don't have blind spots and you're doing it well? So I would say work on the demand part as being coachable as in addition to building coaching skills. I love that. Really great last tip. Last question for you, Kevin. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Crazy. 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 Tell us more about that. I think the future is going to be crazy. Up until 2019, I was a fan of predictions of the future. And then 2020 rolled around and Corona and all that. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I think we're going to be in for more change than we've ever seen before. I just get the sense of those that are ready for the future are those that, one, have a clear set of values that, okay, we've never faced this before. What do we believe in? What can help us guide our decisions, guide my choices? I think getting clear on that. So how do I deal with the craziness by knowing what's important for me and my organization? And then for the unknowns, like, yeah, there's going to be unknowns. And how can I be a learner? How can I be coachable? How do I bring my curiosity and confidence into those situations? Because it's crazy. Nobody has the answer. No one knows how the play is going to end, but jump on in. We're going to do it together. And so I think as much as we love to have a couple of years of just kickback, normal things the way they are. I don't think so. I think the future's to the brave. I think the future's to the curious. And ultimately, JP, if I may, I think the future's for the more coachable leaders out there and we should help them grow. Kevin, great answer. Thank you for your candidness because I think you're right. There's a lot of crazy in the world. But if you're coachable, hopefully we can overcome that. So thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Awesome to talk with you today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Kevin for sharing his research and practical insights on how to be a more coachable leader. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe or share our podcast with at least one other person or even better, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us to grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Sarah Kelly. Sarah is the Executive Vice President and Chief Partner Officer for Starbucks. And in her role, Sarah is responsible for helping 400,000 Green Apron partners realize their career potential and build global partner capability to enable growth, and help deliver Starbucks' strategic plan. Sarah is an inspiring leader who will share more about her personal purpose and how that's guided her amazing career at Starbucks. 
This was an incredible conversation and one you won't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.